tomorrow my family and I get on a plane to Uganda. We're going to be in Uganda for the next three weeks. We're going to visit family and friends, um, do some work with my wife's nonprofit called Mercy for Mamas, and uh, it's going to be a sweet time. We're really excited about the trip. We're going to miss you. Um, next Sunday, Pastor Steve will preach uh, Romans 10. The Sunday after that, Pastor Mike will preach the first part of Romans 11. The Sunday after that, I'll be back in body. I'm not sure about brain or anything else. I'll be back, but I'm not preaching that Sunday. Uh, our elder, Vincent Lefrieri, is going to finish up Romans 11 for us. And uh, so you're going to be in very, very capable hands for sure the next few weeks. So appreciate you praying for us, um, just that we would see God in, in all of our travels. And uh, we'll be excited to come back with good stories for you. One last thing I want to touch base on, uh, it's uh, been just a, a stunning uh, last few days since the news broke on Friday of the overturn of Roe versus Wade, something we have prayed for, something we as a church have acted towards for many, many, many years. And so I, my encouragement to us very briefly, all too briefly, is one that we would celebrate in prayer and with each other. At this news, too, that we would be humble, that we would not, it, it's, it's one thing to celebrate, it's another thing to rub stuff in people's faces, and that's not who we are. Um, we want to be humble and compassionate. We want to make sure that we model sanctity of life, especially to those uh, who feel otherwise. Um, we also want to uh, take action. Things don't change too much for residents of Massachusetts right now anyways, sadly. But that doesn't mean uh, the fight for life doesn't change. It just means that we can't rely on uh, our courts to fix it for us. But we as a church and we as people have uh, a great amount of ability to impact lives so that abortion becomes unthinkable. And so if you haven't done so in a long time, uh, our church has partnered with a, an organization in Kingston called Bethesda House. It'd be awesome if they woke up to some new financial donations tomorrow morning. Bethesda House. Look it up online or call the church office this week and we'll get you their info. Uh, if you have not yet done so but you've been considering it, it might be time to uh, renew an interest in adoption or foster care. Certainly not options for every family, um, but it might be for yours. It might be something worth praying about and looking into um, so that we have good systems in place uh, for families in need, and also that we um, create the opportunity for every mother that wants to, to raise her own child in her own home. That's what Sanctity of Life does. More than just uh, a legal declaration, it has to be about a full, vibrant life. I'm grateful for the ways our church has already been involved in that effort, and uh, will continue to be. So, there you go. Romans chapter 9. Have you ever heard of this game called Bean Boozled? It, it involves jelly beans. And uh, the way the game is played is uh, some of the jelly beans taste awesome and some of the jelly beans taste disgusting. They are flavors that are not suitable for me to describe in this sacred space. Uh, but you spin the wheel, you eat a jelly bean, and either you get a good one or a bad one, and that's it. Uh, if the book of Romans were the game of being boozled, some people would say chapter 8 is the best tasting jelly bean, and chapter 9 could be the grossest jelly bean. 
Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Uh, chapter 9 is a challenging and a difficult piece of Scripture. Not just chapter 9, but chapters 9, 10, and 11. It's not entirely just by coincidence that we've saved these chapters for the summer months when many people are traveling. But oftentimes, we, we we'll finish chapter 8, we get to chapter 9, and there's a lot of turmoil and difficulty for the Bible reader. Uh, if you were to consult any sort of study material, any sort of preacher on this topic, and ask, what's Romans chapter 9 about? The, the regular answer you will get is that this is about election, the doctrine of election. And there's not a lot of agreement even on what that looks like within the confines of chapter 9. Two of my favorite theologians disagree vigorously with each other on how to approach and understand Romans chapter 9. And so what happens is people often use this passage just for theological debates on the doctrine of election rather than studying it within its context for what it actually has to say. The result for the Bible reader, the result for me and you is often confusion and fear abound as we work our way through chapter 9. Well, if you want to learn about the doctrine of election, chapter 9 is certainly an essential piece of Scripture, but this chapter is not solely about election. It is a part of a broader discussion on Paul's part, and if we'll treat it that way, then it's going to make much more sense to us. In my estimation, a proper study of Romans 9 should not result in theological confusion or a terror of God, or any hopelessness about the fate of those we love who are yet unsaved. But instead, I believe Romans 9 should result in the awe of God, the praise of God, and us telling the story of God. And I'll explain why I believe awe and praise and evangelism are the right responses to Romans 9 at the close of our time together. So, uh, we're going to walk very methodically through this chapter together this morning. And it might help if I give you a little road map, a very simple uh, structure of Romans chapter 9. The first five verses, Paul gives us a problem. And it's the problem that drives the rest of the chapter. Five verses of problem, the rest of the chapter is an explanation of the problem, or Paul addresses the problem in five different ways. And so what we're going to do is we're just going to go step by step through the chapter. Normally what we do on a Sunday morning, our regular rhythm is we'll read the whole passage together and then we'll dive into it. But this morning what I'm going to do is I'm going to read section by section as we go through this study. And so I want to encourage you to take some good notes. Uh, I will at the end of our time, in my conclusion, I'm going to post one more slide that has all of the major teaching points on it just to help you uh, make sure you get them all down. So if you, if you miss one, don't sweat it. You can come back to it at the uh, conclusion of the sermon, all right? So Romans chapter 9 begins with a problem, and that's where we're going to start. First thing we've got to consider is the problem facing us in Romans 9, and the problem is this. It is Israel's rejection of the gospel. Chapter 8, so good. We love chapter 8. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us, and nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. We go from that mountaintop to a hard pivot to intense grief over the spiritual state of Paul's fellow Jews. 
So I want you to look at how Paul describes his grief in verses 1 through 5. Look at your Bible with me. Paul writes this, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises. The ancestors are theirs, and from them, by physical descent, came the Christ, who is God over all, praised forever. Amen. What's the source of Paul's grief? Well, Paul is grieving Israel's large-scale rejection of the gospel. You'll remember in, in our study of Romans, we've referenced multiple times the makeup of that specific church. That, that group of believers in and throughout the city of Rome was made up of a significant number of Gentiles uh, who believed the gospel and a small number of Jews who believed the gospel. And that was true for the church at large on Paul's day. And so Paul's grieving the, the, the state of affairs. And look at how intense his grief is. In verse 1, he makes sure that we understand that what he's about to tell us is not only the truth, but it is hugely important. His sorrow is great. His anguish unceasing. Isn't it interesting that the same man who told us to rejoice always also describes himself as having unceasing anguish? It's interesting that the human heart can carry both of these sentiments. His grief for Israel is so great that if he could, he would forfeit his own salvation if it meant more of his own flesh and blood could be saved. His grief for Israel is intensified when he thinks about all the advantages they've had in knowing the heart of God and his gospel. And he lists eight different advantages, starting in verse 4. He says, look, the, the people of Israel are the adopted children of God. They know God's glory, the covenants, the law, the temple service, God's promises, the spiritual ancestors. But, but they have one final ultimate advantage that belongs to them and only to them. It is that the anointed Savior of mankind comes from them. He is Jesus the Christ. And do you see how Paul described Jesus in verse 5? He called him God over all. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is God. He is not the man chosen by God, the man who became God, more than a man, less than a God. He's not just some elevated man. He is very God of God. The Bible teaches us over and over of the triune nature of our God. And this is not a small thing. A billion Muslims on this planet do not believe that Jesus is God. Neither do Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or New Age spiritualists and more and more mainline liberal denominations are losing the doctrine of the Trinity. Friends, you cannot deny the Trinity and call yourself a Christian. Mormons are not Christians. They need Jesus Christ. Jehovah's Witnesses are not Christians. They need Jesus Christ as their Savior. Muslims do not worship the same God you do. They deny the divinity of Christ. They need Jesus Christ. He is God over all to be praised forever. How does Paul respond to those who deny the divinity of Christ? He responds with grief and compassion. And I think 
the posture of Paul's heart is informative for us today. He does not see deniers of Christ as enemies for battle. He views the lost just as Jesus views them in Matthew chapter 9 with compassion because they are like sheep without a shepherd. The church that has the heart of Christ will be willing to lay down their rights if it means the gospel gets a hearing. We will go to war for the lost and never against them. So Israel's rejection of the gospel, it raises an unspoken question. In my study of Romans 9, this unspoken question is what has given me understanding and it's what's going to frame the rest of our time together in this chapter. The unspoken question is this, how can we trust the gospel considering so many from Israel have rejected it? That's the unspoken question, but it shapes the rest of what Paul has to say. The state of affairs, Israel has rejected the gospel, denied Christ. If, if that happened with them and God made promises to them, well, it seems like God's promises may have failed. If it didn't work for Israel, what makes it think that it's going to work for us? In short, why should we trust the gospel? And Paul gives us five answers to that question. In light of this problem, how is it that we can trust the gospel? And Paul's first answer is this, we can trust the gospel because God's word has not failed. In verses 6 through 13, we can trust the gospel because God's word has not failed. In these verses, 6 through 13, Paul gives us two examples from the Old Testament that explain why Israel's rejection of the gospel is not a failure of God's word or God's promises, but rather what's at play here is God's sovereign choice to shape his people as he wills. Look at verses 6 through 13 with me. Here's what Paul writes. He says, Now it's not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Here comes his examples, the first of them. Neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, it's not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. For this is the statement of the promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Who was Sarah's son? It was Isaac. Verse 10, and not only that, but Rebekah, conceived children through one man our father Isaac for through her or excuse me for though her sons had not yet been born or done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to election might stand not from works but from the one who calls she was told the older will serve the younger and it's written I have loved Jacob but I have hated Esau so the assumption here is that God promised Israel that they would always be His people. They are now rejecting the gospel, which must mean that God's promise to Israel has failed. And Paul says that's not the case at all. That's how he begins verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Verse 6 is essential to understanding the rest of this chapter, and I would dare say even chapters 10 and 11. Not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Another way of saying it is that not all those who are ethnically Jewish are God's chosen people. They are not all people of promise. Paul makes this point with these two Old Testament examples. The first example comes from the life of Abraham. It was in verses 7 and 8. 
Paul says that neither are all of Abraham's children his descendants. On the contrary, your offspring will be traced through Isaac. That is, not all, or excuse me, not the children, not all the children by physical descent are God's children, but the children of the promise are considered to be the offspring. So you remember that Abraham had how many sons? He had two sons. He had Ishmael and Isaac. And with Ishmael, God gave some blessings to Ishmael for sure, but it was Isaac who was chosen by God as the child of promise. So in Paul's illustration here, not all of Abraham's children are Abraham's children. The only one is the child of promise, and that's the one to whom God's promise, God's word is fulfilled. And he closes that first example with this quote from Genesis 18.10 there in verse 9, this is the statement of promise, right? Here's God's word. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Her son is Isaac. Well, someone could say to Paul, well, Paul, that's not a great example because Ishmael and Isaac had different mothers. Same dad, but different moms. That's a good point. So Paul gives a second example explaining how not all from Israel are Israel. The second example is of Isaac and his wife, Rebekah, and they had twin boys named Jacob and Esau. God chose for his promise to go through Jacob and not through Esau. So again, another example of how not all from Israel are Israel. Not all of Abraham's children are his children. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Well, this is where you and I might be tempted to say, well, it must be because God knew something about Jacob's future faith, or God knew about the good things Jacob would accomplish for him. So God knew he needed Jacob on his team, and that's why he chose Jacob. Or God knew the bad things Esau would do. He knew what a detriment Esau would be to his team, so he rejected Esau. But Paul goes to great lengths here to make sure that we understand God's choice of Jacob had nothing at all to do with Jacob. In verse 11, Paul says God chose Jacob before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. And Paul says that God chose Jacob uh, in this way so that his freedom to include within his people anyone he wants might remain uncompromised. In verse 12, Paul explains that God's choice was unconventional because he chose the younger son instead of the older son. Again, not because of anything God saw or foreknew about the two boys, but only because of His sovereign right to shape His people as He wishes. So then we get to verse 13, and, and that's when we hear the metaphorical record scratch. Verse 13, it's written, I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau. This line causes a great amount of fear and anxiety because when we read it, I think we, what we tend to do is, is we substitute the names of people we love for Jacob and Esau, and we hope and pray that God loves them and doesn't hate them, or that God loves me and doesn't hate me. I hope to quiet that fear, strongly quiet that fear by explaining where this line comes from. This line is a quote of God from the prophet Malachi. In the opening lines of the book of Malachi, God is explaining why he has chosen blessing for the nation of Israel and why he has stood against and even crushed the enemy nation of Edom. So this quote comes from God speaking about people groups, not individuals. Who is a patriarch of Israel? Jacob. Who is the patriarch of Edom? 
It's Esau. So when God says through the prophet Malachi, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, he's not speaking of the individual men. He's speaking of groups of people. He's saying this is the group who I accept. This is the group that I reject. Now to be sure, there are certainly implications for individual election in this passage, but the first application of this troubling verse is to those who belong to God by faith in Christ versus those who have rejected Christ. The ones God loves are those who have heard the gospel and responded with faith in Christ. Those rejected by God are those who have rejected Him by denying Christ. This verse does not describe God to be capricious or, or flippant in the way He deals with human souls, as if, I like you, but I'm not going to like you, and, and that's it. This describes a God who is faithful to His Word to save those who call on the name of Christ and those who reject Him are welcomed to walk forward in that rejection and all of its consequences. So does God's rejection, or excuse me, does Israel's rejection of God mean that God's word has failed? Not at all. It means that God's word is true. Not all Israel are Israel. Remember what Paul told us back in Romans chapter 2, that, that circumcision is not of the flesh, but it's of the heart. True Israel are, are those who put their faith in Jesus. Those who trust in Christ are those whom God has chosen according to His sovereign, compassionate grace. And the idea that God has a chosen people, of course, it's not original to Paul. He takes it from the Old Testament. He also takes it from Jesus himself, who said in John 13, 18, I know those I have chosen. Those who are chosen are those who believe. So this should create great humility in us to know that we who believe are those who are chosen by God, not because of what we would do or accomplish or the sin we would avoid, but only because of God's sovereign, compassionate grace. No one gets to thump their chest in the face of the world and say, look how favored I am of God and you are not. Salvation is all of God's grace, not through any merit of our own. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon had to say about the doctrine of election. He described it this way. He said, I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite sure that if God had never chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I could never find any reason in me why he should look on me with special love. So I am forced to accept that doctrine. So knowing that those who believe are the elect of God should not only create in us humility, but also hope in our evangelistic praying and efforts. Romans 9 should never leave you destitute for the sake of those whose salvation you are praying for, but it should give you courage to know that God is true to His Word those he's predestined, he calls, and those he calls, he justifies. So God's word succeeds in saving those who call on Christ through faith. We can trust the gospel because God's word has not failed. The second reason we can trust the gospel is because God is not unjust. God's word hasn't failed. God himself is not unjust. So Paul raises another question in verse 14. 
Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, what should we say then? Is there unjust, uh, injustice with God? So is it unjust of God to reject those who reject Christ, but to accept those who put their faith in Christ? Is it unjust of God to say to Israel, I, you must put your faith in Christ to be saved or else you will face judgment? Is that unjust of God? And Paul's answer is absolutely not. You see, the problem here is not with God's exercise of justice, but with our understanding of justice. And so Paul explains that, that God's mercy to believing Jews and Gentiles does not negate His justice. Look at how Paul argues this, starting in verse 15. He says, For God tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. For the Scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason, so that I may display my power in you, and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So Paul explains God's justice to us by taking us to Moses and Pharaoh to help us see that mercy and judgment are both components of God's justice. So in verse 15, Paul quotes from Exodus 33, where God said to Moses, I'll show mercy to whom I'll show mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. God showed mercy to Moses and his stiff-necked people, and this was an exercise of God's justice. So God's mercy to sinners is one of his primary characteristics. And we know from Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26, that because of Christ's atoning death, God is righteous in his mercy shown to those who turn to Jesus by faith. How is it just of God to show mercy to sinners? God's justice is satisfied through Christ's death at the cross. The sin of the saved is not just blown away into the ether or just forgotten about. God's mercy requires the death of His Son. It costs Christ His life. There at the cross, God's justice on your sin is satisfied. So is God's mercy incompatible with justice? Not at all. The cross is where justice succeeds. And if not the cross, then the judgment. And so Paul uses Pharaoh to describe God's justice in judgment on sin. The Scripture, verse 17, Scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up for this reason so I may display my power in you, that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and hardens whom he wants to harden. Pharaoh's an example of someone who rejected God and His will. Pharaoh did not reject God because God hardened his heart. Rather, Pharaoh's heart was already hardened in rebellion against God, and God gave him what he had already set his hardened heart on. Listen, every person alive is a rebel against the grace and mercy of God. Every person there's no one who is born with a clean slate. We all have inherited Adam's sinful DNA, so to speak. He's our head, our representative, and in Adam, all of us are dead in our sin. God's judgment on sinful souls is just. But this primary characteristic of our God is mercy, mercy to sinners that through faith in Christ, 
His justice would be satisfied and salvation could be ours. Isn't it interesting that Paul chose to use unbelieving Pharaoh to represent the unbelieving Jews of his own, own day, to even represent today all those who are non-believers? So God is just when He rejects those who have rejected Him. He is just when He shows mercy to those who respond to His call with faith in Christ. We can trust the gospel because God, His word has not failed. God is just. Third reason we can trust the gospel is because God is not unfair. He's not unfair. So look at the question Paul poses in verse 19. You'll say to me, therefore, why then does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul is asking, essentially, why does God hold us accountable for our sin when He's doing all the electing? It's an accusatory question of God's fairness. And Paul answers this one accusatory question with five questions of his own. The first question in verse 20, he says, But who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? Have you ever had a toddler give you sass? I mean, they wake up just overflowing. Three years old, they're going to tell you how you, a grown adult, should lead your life and make your decisions and let them do what they want to do. And it's, there's something mildly humorous when it's not you whenever a sassy toddler gives attitude to an adult. As silly as that is, how much more ridiculous is it when finite sinful man tries to tell the holy, infinite God what is fair and unfair. Who are you, a mere man, to talk back to God? The second question Paul asks is in verse 20. He says, well, what is formed? Say to the one who formed it, why would you make me like this? As, as if this, it's God's fault. You made me a sinner. I can't be accountable for the sin you make me do. What right does the creature have to accuse the Creator? Reminds me of how the book of Job ends. Chapter 38, God's been silent the whole time. All of a sudden, he says, Job, buckle up. He just machine guns these questions. Where were you when I formed the earth? Did you measure its span? Did you do all of this while the heavens sang? Paul calls for humility in our accusatory questioning of God. Third question he asks in response, verse 21, or has the potter no right over the clay to make from the same lump one piece of pottery for honor and another for dishonor? In this word picture, you have a potter, and that potter has one lump of clay, and that potter chooses to divide that lump, and he's going to make out of one of those lumps, he'll make a, a vessel for honor like a plate that might be used in a formal dinner. And he'll make a, a vessel that is dishonorable. Maybe it's the dog's bowl. He can make both, a vessel of honor. And, and I'm not saying I don't love dogs. Just bear with me, right? It, it, there's a vessel of honor and dishonor. You're not serving Thanksgiving dinner out of the dog bowl, or I'm not coming to your house. That's bad. So here it is. The, the potter has the right over the one lump of clay to say, this is a vessel of honor, this is a vessel of dishonor. Sometimes when we read this word picture, we read it as if God has the right of the Creator to just flippantly destroy His creation. That's not the word picture. God loves His creation. Every 
piece of his creation. He loves us all. But he has the right to form his people as he wants. Those who are honorable, the vessels of honor in this word picture, are those who hear the gospel of Christ and respond with faith in Christ. Those who are represented by the vessel of dishonor are those who have rejected Christ. So doesn't God as the potter have the right to say, I'm going to shape my people as I will, and I'm going to shape them according to how they respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ? The fourth question he asks is in verse 22. What if God, wanting to display His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience objects of wrath prepared for destruction? So think again of those vessels of dishonor, those who have rejected Christ. They are objects of wrath prepared for destruction. But how does God respond? With much patience. It it reminds me of, of the old Puritan line, everything on this side of hell is mercy. Don't quit praying for the people you love. Don't quit speaking of Christ to the people who need Him. God bears with much patience, merciful patience, those who are even this day rejected Him. And then Paul's fifth question in response to the charge of God's unfairness is in verse 23. What if He did this to make known the riches of His glory on the objects of mercy that He prepared beforehand for glory? On us, the ones He also called not only from the Jews but also from the Gentiles. So God's patience with sinners actually magnifies His mercy to those He's called to salvation, which according to verse 24 is a beautiful church made up of both Jews and Gentiles who believe on Christ. God's defining characteristic is not unfairness or even judgment. It is mercy. It is a patient mercy to those who reject Christ, and it is a glorious eternal mercy to those who receive Christ. So, brothers and sisters, look, in light of this section of chapter 9, we have freedom in Christ to ask any question we want of God. But we must be careful when we come to accuse God of unfairness. Do not accuse God of unfairness unless you know what God knows. God is a God of glorious mercy to those who hear His call and turn to Christ. Why can we trust the gospel? A fourth reason we can trust the gospel is because God said the church would be this way. God foretold that this is what the makeup of the church would look like, that the church would be majority Gentiles who hear the gospel and respond in faith and a minority of Jewish people who hear the gospel and respond by faith. So one objection that could be made against Paul was that a church made up largely of Gentiles was never God's plan, to which Paul responds in verses 25 to 29, well, actually, yeah, this is the way God has always told us it was going to be. So Paul explains the inclusion of the Gentiles by quoting from the prophet Hosea. Look at what he says, starting in verse 25. As it also says in Hosea, I will call not my people, my people. And it will be in the place where they were told you are not my people. There they will be called sons of the living God. So we've seen already that God has the right to show mercy to whomever he will. And God's choice of whom he will show mercy to is often surprising from our perspective. So those who were not his people are now those who 
are his people by faith in Jesus Christ. Those who were outside are now called sons of the living God through faith in Christ. That's the, the Old Testament speaking. And Paul then explains the small number of Jewish believers by quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Look at verse 27. Look at what Paul says there. He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, only the remnant will be saved, since the Lord will execute his sentence completely and decisively on the earth. And just as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been made like Gomorrah. The key phrase is in verse 27, only the remnant will be saved. The Bible shows us historically that only a small number of God's people could be considered people of faith, people of the promise. And, and this is what happened with Abraham and Lot. So Paul quotes Isaiah regarding the small number of the faithful who avoided the fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And so the believing Jews in Paul's day mirrored the situation of the Jews in Abraham's day. They were a remnant preserved by God due to their faith. However, at the risk of skipping ahead, if you were to go to chapter 11, verse 25 of Romans, Paul speaks there of the future shaping of the church. And what you'll find when you get to chapter 11 is Paul is going to say what's happening now, present tense in Paul's day and now present tense in our day, is a partial or temporary hardening of the hearts of Israel. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, or when that number of the Gentiles have believed that satisfies God's sovereign choice, then there will be a massive turning of Israel to faith in Jesus Christ. The line Paul uses, chapter 11, verse 25, then all Israel will be saved. Is he preaching Jewish universalism? No strongly, no, Paul is not a Jewish universalist. And if your eschatology teaches that, it's wrong. What he's saying is that when they hear the gospel, they will hear the call of God, they will turn in faith to Jesus Christ, they will be saved. The church will not be a lot of Gentiles and a few Jews forever. There will be a time when it balances out in some way according to God's sovereign plan. If I were preaching the end of chapter 11, that's how I would handle that verse. But for now, for today, the church of God, the church of faith in Jesus Christ is an international church. It's made up of many Gentiles and not yet many Jews, just as God described in the Old Testament. From this we see that the New Testament church is not the replacement for Israel, rather the New Testament church is the fulfillment of what God always intended His people to be. One more reason we can trust the gospel. You've done so well, I know it's been a lot. One more reason to trust the gospel. It's because Israel's failure is their own failure of faith. It's a failure to believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Faith doesn't fail, so I don't want you to confuse my language here for the sake of brevity. Uh, it's a failure to believe on Christ. That's the failure at play. Look at verse 30. Paul says, what should we say then? Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, namely the righteousness that comes from faith. 
So Paul says Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness, right? They didn't go seeking for God, but God found them. God foreknew them, predestined them, and called them. And when they heard the gospel and believed, they were justified, and they will be glorified, all this by faith in Christ. But as for Israel, look at verse 31. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not achieved the righteousness of the law. Why is that? Because they did not pursue it by faith, as if it were by work, or but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it's written, look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over, and the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. So Israel's failure is not God's fault. It is their own. They pursued righteousness through the law, and it was never going to work. They were hardened in their rebellion against God so that when the good news of the Messiah came, they stumbled over it. You'll see in verse 33 that the stumbling stone has a pronoun. That pronoun is him. The stone is Christ, and those who believe on him will not be put to shame. The failure here is not a failure of God's word. It's not a failure of God's character. It's a failure to call on the name of Christ to be saved. That's true for every person in existence. So what about you? Is Jesus your stumbling stone or your cornerstone? Have you tried to justify yourself by arguing how good you are, how religious you are? Or or, or have you tried to, to argue your case by saying how sinful you're not compared to other people? The fact that you've heard the gospel today is evidence of God's patient mercy to you. God doesn't affirm us in our self-righteousness, but rather He calls us out of it to trust in the true righteousness through faith in Christ. So if you will turn your life to Jesus and trust in His death and resurrection to save you, you will know God's glorious mercy that gives new life. Today, friend, you have to turn yourself to faith in Jesus Christ as God calls you. So we've covered a lot of ground this morning. You've been so good to track with me. And so let's just real quick uh, rehash. In light of Israel's rejection of Jesus, can we really trust the gospel? The answer is yes, we can trust the gospel for these five reasons. And just in case you may have missed them, here they are on the screen again. Here are the five reasons why we can trust the gospel. One, because God's word has not failed. Two, God is not unjust. Three, God is not unfair. Four, God said it would be this way. And then five, Israel's failure is a failure of faith. It's a failure to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. So if I were to ask you, what is Romans 9 all about? Well, some people will say it's about election. It's about the doctrine of election. And I mean, election is certainly here. But this chapter begins and ends with Israel's failure to trust in Jesus. I think the primary doctrine on display in Romans chapter 9 is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ for salvation. That's the defining characteristic of the elect. So Romans 9 is about the family of God that God has chosen to make for Himself by calling people from all nations to faith in Jesus Christ. 
I hope that takes fear and confusion out of your reading of Romans chapter 9. But it still leaves us with this question, what do we do with it now? What do we do with it? I mean, it's been a lot today. What do we do with all of it? Well, if you remember at the start of our time together, I said that I believe a proper study of Romans 9 should result in three responses, the awe of God, the praise of God, and evangelism. So we should be in awe of God. Why? Because of His incredible mercy. In Romans 9, we don't see a God who's just a, a, a violent, torturous, judgmental, angry deity, but a God who is patient in mercy and gives glorious mercy to all those who call on Christ. That's a God to be in awe of. Second, we should praise God. We should praise Him specifically for the beautiful church He has made and is still shaping by His sovereign will. The shaping of the church is not finished yet. And so we can praise God that we belong to this church, a church of, of beautiful diversity, a church that's growing and being shaped by His will. And third, we should speak of God. We should tell the story of the gospel. Friends, if chapter 9 doesn't put a fire in your bones to have gospel conversations, then you need to read it again, and you need to buckle up for chapter 10. This chapter gives us the sure hope that all those who are called by God, who hear the gospel, and who call on the name of Christ will be saved. But in order for them to believe, they must hear. The doctrine of election does not hurt the evangelistic mission of the church, but rather it is rocket fuel for our evangelistic mission. Because we believe that among every people group on earth, God has people there. He has chosen people from every nation on earth. And the way we will know those whom He has chosen is by telling them of the glorious love of Christ, His death and resurrection, and calling them to turn to Jesus by faith. And as they hear the call of God, and as they turn to Christ in faith, they will be justified, they will be glorified, and the church will continue to be shaped just as God intends. Do not give up your evangelistic praying or efforts. Jesus knows who are His, and through the gospel, they can know that He is theirs. So Romans chapter 9 leaves us in awe of God's mercy, praising Him for His beautiful church, and proclaiming the good news to the lost world, a lost world whom Jesus loved, whom Paul loved, and whom His church loves as well. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your faithful word to us, a, a word that gives us confidence that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are truly your children forever. May that create in us humility, knowing that it's not through any merit of our own, but it is only through your incredible and sometimes mysterious grace. Lord, let us be a humble people in our walk with you in a people of faith, believing your word, that those who hear the gospel will call on your name and they will be saved. So Lord, when we look at this passage of scripture, would you remind us that this is not something to be afraid of or confused by, but to recognize the glorious promises here, that you're the God who saves sinners. Thank you for that kind of mercy to us and to our world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.